The Guardian. Welcome back to the Age of Extinction takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we are biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. Our work centres around the destruction of the natural world and ways we can protect it for future generations. If you haven't already, check out part one of our takeover, where we explore the benefits of birdsong and being in nature. Green prescriptions might soon be coming to a GP surgery near you. Today we're keeping our focus on birds, except this time we're looking at how our behaviour impacts them, and what listening to birdsong can tell us about the health of ecosystems. Many bird populations around the world are in crisis. Nearly 40% of all bird species are in decline globally, according to a 2018 survey by BirdLife International. In 2019, the RSPB warned that 40 million birds have vanished from the skies of the UK in just 50 years. In the same time period, bird populations in the US and Canada are down by 3 billion. What can we do about it? Lockdown has been a sad and difficult time, but for some acoustic researchers, it has presented an opportunity to study the effect our noise has on birds, because for a few months, humanity went quiet. Before we get into the scientific detail of birdsong, Patrick, I want to start with what I'm calling a lockdown auditory illusion. Right. So I've been speaking with Elizabeth Derryberry, I'm an associate professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Hi, Phoebe. She's been monitoring how birdsong has changed during the spring lockdown in the US. I'm going to play you two recordings from near the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. One before the lockdown and one during. You have to tell me which one is louder. So it's the same bird species, a white-crowned sparrow, recorded from the same distance away. Okay, are you ready? That was the first clip, and this is the second. Right, Phoebe, I think this is an easy one. The white-crowned sparrow is clearly singing much louder in the second clip, and I'm guessing that is from the lockdown because the traffic is, is far quieter. Okay, so you're right about it being from lockdown. But in the second clip, the bird is actually singing more quietly. Phoebe, I'm sorry, I just don't believe that. How, that's no, <laughs> yeah. no way. It sounds much louder in the, the second clip. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? So, I mean, during lockdown, you know, we've all been talking about how much louder birds are singing in cities. But this actually wasn't the case, according to Dr. Derryberry. Her research showed that birds were singing more quietly. Now, I was also baffled and said exactly the same thing when she told me it was quieter. Right, it was counterintuitive because just like anybody else, they sounded louder. And the reason that is because even though they sang more softly, in fact, they dropped their amplitude by about a third, the background noise levels, the traffic dropped even more, it dropped by about 50%. And so that song to noise ratio or signal to noise ratio got bigger. So you can really hear it better. Right, so some birdsong is actually quieter in the absence of human noise. Why? It's odd, isn't it? So 
Dr. Derryberry's research is based on thousands of recordings, and this is just one of them. But she saw this trend across the board. And I asked her if she too was surprised by this discovery. From a science perspective, I wasn't surprised in the sense that we expected them to sing more softly. And that's because of something called the Lombard effect or the cocktail party effect. When there's a party, a cocktail party, and people show up, it gets louder and louder. And you speak more and more loudly, right? Your voice raises and it kind of goes up in frequency and it probably sounds a little rough. And you're really almost shouting at the height of the party. Of course, when people start to go home, you don't keep shouting, right? Unless maybe you've had one too many. (laughs) You modulate, right? You turn the volume down and maybe you have richer conversations, right? Maybe you're talking philosophy. And so we thought, well, San Francisco is like a big cocktail party that just ended. And the birds themselves, they should sing more quietly. And your amazing analogy to the cocktail party at the end of the night when the background noise is gone and you start talking about philosophy or having deeper conversations, didn't your research also find out that the birds were able to have more complex conversations? Exactly. The second prediction is that the nature of the songs would change. And what we found is that because that low frequency noise dropped out of the soundscape, they were able to widen the range of pitches that they were covering, so their bandwidth, and drop that minimum frequency. With a wider bandwidth, they can now contain more information in that signal, right? The, the philosophy, as you might put it, right? And we know from our past work that in this species, that bandwidth matters. So males respond to that. They are more aggressive in response to a song with a wider bandwidth. It's effectively signaling a sexier, more competitive male. (laughs) So is the implication that if birds are able to communicate more effectively they're more likely to find partners and more likely to reproduce successfully? Yes, exactly. Because communication has a sort of really two important functional purposes, right? Both in competition and in mate choice. Because they can now communicate in both contexts better, right? So their songs can travel further and they sound sexier. They effectively are able to hold their territories better, potentially even bigger territories, and they can attract more mates because more females can hear them. Don't birds experiment with their calls as part of their natural behaviour? They do, but human noise is an unprecedented evolutionary driver for these changes. And Dr. Derryberry's work shows just how quickly this is happening. I asked Dr. Derryberry if other bird species were changing the way they communicate too. Yeah, so interestingly, we don't see the same response in different species. Some seem to be able to respond by selectively singing different parts of their repertoire. So like the great tit, right? It will sing the sort of higher frequency songs when it's louder. European blackbirds will selectively sing those sort of higher frequency notes and drop off some of the lower frequency notes. And then we see ones that will modify, like the white crown sparrow that I study. It only has one song, and so it just shifts the frequencies when it's loud. 
And finally, we see some birds that can't respond, right? Birds that are subossenes or birds that don't learn their songs. So things like flycatchers, right, that don't, won't necessarily adjust their songs, or birds that have really low frequency vocalizations like quails will disappear from a soundscape, presumably because they can't adjust their vocalizations. That's really interesting. Did Dr. Derryberry say anything about birdsong as an indicator of the health of an ecosystem? She did. One of the things that's really interesting in this field is using sound sort of as two things. One is to understand how animal behavior changes in response to things like pollution. And the other is to understand the biodiversity in an area. Birds are really interesting in that they're often sort of sentinel species, right? The canary in the coal mine, if you will, where they're quite sensitive to a number of different pollutants and they rely on food sources like insects that are also quite sensitive to things like chemical and noise and light pollution and can be real indicators of just how humans are having an effect at a global scale on ecosystems. So this is quite an exciting field of study. I remember ages ago when I was back at school doing quadrat surveys and geography lessons, you had to count the number of species within a one metre square. Researchers are basically doing this over a large area with sound now. So they're listening out for what species we have in an area. And actually, it turns out that listening to ecosystems can tell us things about them that we never knew before. Right. I guess that makes sense because a lot of the time you can hear birds but not actually see them. I'm surrounded by lots of owls and woodpeckers here in Norfolk but never actually get a glimpse of of what's making the call. Yeah and if you hadn't been listening you wouldn't have known they were there. So this leads us on to the work of Dr Alice Eldridge from Sussex University who works in the intersection between music, ecology and technology. We started speaking about how she identifies birdsong using artificial intelligence. One approach is to use computational methods that try to identify birdsong. So using AI, create neural networks or other machine learning tools that can learn either by training or using unsupervised methods, but can learn to identify particular species. That's quite useful in the UK, where there's not so many species. But in places like the tropics, there's actually so many species that it's impossible either to separate out their calls individually or to be able to label them, which is a precursor in most forms of artificial intelligence. And so what we need to do in these situations is take a more kind of holistic approach. And this is where ecoacoustics or soundscape ecology works well. So before we go any further, let's just clear up what soundscape ecology is. Soundscape ecology, as the name suggests, is the study of the soundscape. That includes the sounds made by biological creatures, biophony, by humans, anthrophony, and by the abiotic components in the environment, geophony. One of the original ideas of this field came from Bernie Krause. Keen Science Weekly listeners will remember him speaking to Ian Sample a few years ago about sound and conservation. He proposed what he called the acoustic niche hypothesis, which is that when creatures have been cohabiting over long periods in evolutionary terms, that their voices will be well-structured like a good symphony orchestration, if you like. 
The discipline of bioacoustics, which has been around for decades, studies the calls of individual creatures more specifically. And soundscape ecology, or ecoacoustics as it's also called, is kind of zooming out. It's the difference between listening to like the soloist in an orchestra and listening to the whole orchestra. It's almost like different species use different radio frequencies and humans are pushing out other animals from their normal channels like the white-crowned sparrow near the Golden Gate Bridge, which is having to use pirate radio with a higher frequency so it can make itself heard. Dr Eldridge studies these patterns to understand biodiversity in a particular landscape. Here she is again, talking about how you actually analyse sound, and it's a bit like what I was talking about earlier with the quadrats. A lot of people working with sound also use a visual representation called a spectrogram. Along the bottom is time and up the vertical axis is frequency. And then going from the dark green means silence and into yellow, into bright red means there's more sound energy. So you can think of it a bit like a a sort of 3D topographic map. One way of measuring biodiversity is to measure the acoustic diversity. So we're literally looking and saying, what's the range of frequencies? How is the energy distributed across those frequency bands? So we can start to build this measure of acoustic diversity that we can measure computationally. And what that means is that we can do a kind of big audio data and collect tens of thousands of samples and analyse those automatically on a computer. So what we can do is use machine listening, use digital audio analysis, these acoustic indices, as a very rapid way of measuring biodiversity. And that's really important now in conservation initiatives, in understanding the impact of climate change, the impact of changing land use, etc. Right. And I guess this links to my comment earlier about being able to learn more about a landscape by listening rather than looking. Yeah, I think both are valuable. This technology does not replace looking at habitats, but it means we could potentially survey much larger areas and use audio data and machine learning to scan through bird sounds much more quickly. Dr. Eldridge did a study aiming to show how sounds can be used as a proxy for biodiversity. We did surveys in three different sites in the UK and in Ecuador. We've got some ancient woodland in Plashet in East Sussex, and there we can hear a range of different birds calling. If we listen to this other example from NEP, which is a big rewilding project in West Sussex, We've got more different species than we have in the ancient woodland, and that seems counterintuitive at first. But actually, if you think about it, at somewhere like Nep, you've got a mixture of open pasture and woodland, so you have a wider range of species. And then in the third example, this is a barley farm to the eye. It looks like a lovely green field on the rolling south downs. But as you can hear, it's almost silent. It was devoid of insects and birds. We demonstrated that the numbers we get from the computer, which describe the amount of sound energy at different frequencies, correlate with and predict the number of bird species that a human being has counted. Are you able to measure how biodiverse it is from taking one soundscape sample or do you need to take several over a period of time? Yeah that's a really good question because biodiversity itself is quite a complex concept 
we can only really think about biodiversity as it varies over time or across space in a similar habitat. So in any case, we always need to take really large number of samples so that we can explore changes in biodiversity through time or over space. And it's so noisy biological data in the statistical sense as well as the absolute sense in this ecoacoustics that yeah we have to take thousands if not tens of thousands of samples in order to be able to begin to see some pattern. Could you talk to us a bit more about what's being done in acoustic ecology globally and I guess where your research sits in a broader frame of general research in this area? There's lots of really exciting developments all over the world. There's major research centres in this now in most continents. And so we're learning more and more about the ecological impact. And at the same time, I think as we're working globally, there's a greater awareness of the importance of soundscape to other human cultures across the globe as well. From my perspective, I find it really interesting because it adds another conservation imperative that we can say, oh, we need to save the Amazon because it's the lungs of the planet. And of course, that's important. And it's a biodiversity hotspot. and We're going to lose all these species. But it's also home to these indigenous communities. And for them, it's like all of their cultural heritage, if you like, as well, is tied up in these soundscapes. And could you talk a bit more about what the future is in this field and particularly how machine learning and AI might help us to get a better insight into sound ecology? This is quite a new field and it's evolving quite rapidly. And in one direction, you've got the computational analysis and advances in deep learning. At the same time, things are cheaper, more affordable, and we can now run these algorithms on embedded chips. So we can already do in situ identification, say, of like gunshot or chainsaws, which can be deployed in places where logging and poaching is a threat. And of course, the affordability and accessibility of the technology, that's true, not just for scientists, but for the general population. So we're getting these really rich snapshots and libraries building up of sound recordings all around the world. It sounds like soundscape ecology has a bright future, but we know many bird populations are in crisis around the world. I guess with that, we could lose their calls and songs from landscapes forever. What can we do about that? Yeah, it's a really sad thought that we're losing all this beauty. And as you mentioned, the overall outlook for birds is pretty bleak. But I think this is a really exciting area of research. And certainly Dr Eldridge believes that sound ecology could be a useful tool in combating these declines. In order to reverse biodiversity loss, we need to be able to evidence it. That's the bottom line in this field, really. Sound is a really accessible methodology in order to achieve that. Another thing is that, as we learned with Dr. Derryberry's work, if you remove sound, it disappears immediately. So it's a lot easier to deal with than other pollutants in some ways. And I think doing this podcast, I've really learned how much our sound is impacting birds. And hopefully, as we do become aware of it, we can push more to reduce sound in urban areas, which will help birds and probably actually in turn help us as well. Okay, so what about the future then? What will we be listening to? Mm, I like to be positive and hope. <laughs> Obviously, the figures are terrifying, but 
like the recordings taken here from net estate it is phenomenal how quickly natural processes do take back over we just need to convince our government and global governments to fund the very many brilliant initiatives for restoration conservation and rewilding that are taking place globally Talking about Dr Eldridge's work is a nice way to finish this little journey about birdsong. Because not only does listening to birdsong make us feel good, we can also use birdsong to protect the species we're listening to. And there's a lot of technology which could mean we'll understand biodiversity in richer ways than before. I guess, Phoebe, what really excites me is that this sounds like yet another field of study that will combat our natural history blindness. There's still so much that we don't know about what we live alongside on planet Earth. And I really hope that the clips that some of the academics we've spoken to in this episode are using don't become time capsules of things that humans used to be able to hear in towns and cities and in rural areas. And that we don't look back with our grandchildren and play them recordings of what the dawn chorus used to sound like. Hopefully, this really exciting body of research will be followed by new ways of protecting habitats and giving us tools to look after our planet better than ever before. And talking about what will the dawn chorus sound like in, you know, 2050, 2100, it's all still to play for. It's, it's up to us. And if we give nature space, it will come back. To end the show, we wove together recordings of some of the UK's threatened bird species into a dawn chorus of our own. So here's the cuckoo, skylark, song thrush and the nightingale. We hope that we'll still be hearing these birds in the years to come. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. This episode was produced by Lucy Evans. The executive producer was Max Sanderson, and the commissioning editor for Age of Extinction was Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the Band Foundation and by the WIS Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at guardian.com. You'll also find links to any reports or articles mentioned in this episode. We've received lots of lovely emails after our first Science Weekly takeover, so keep them coming. If you have any thoughts, feedback or ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We'll be back soon. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.